2: Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, how Chinese tourists are helping shift the country's current account from surplus to deficit. And what hurdles does Volkswagen face as it tries to go green? First, though. Britain, Singapore and Australia have become the latest airlines to ground Boeing 737 MAX airplane after two deadly crashes in the past five months. In the latest, on March 10th, a virtually new Boeing 737 MAX airliner crashed near Addis Ababa within minutes of taking off, killing all 149 passengers and eight crew aboard. In October last year, a similar crash killed 189 people in the sea off Indonesia. The crashes raise questions about the safety of the American aircraft makers' top selling planes. Charles Reed, the economist's travel blogger, Gulliver, has been following the story. Charles, obviously the superficial similarities between these two crashes are alarming, but we're still waiting for the authorities to review the black boxes and give a ruling. How unusual is it for countries to ground planes before that ruling has come?
3: Well, it has happened before to in two thousand and thirteen with boeing seven eight seven there were problems with Boeing the um, lithium iron batteries on that plane, and, and those planes were grounded for three months. But I think the big difference is that those batteries um, didn 't cause any fatal accidents uh, which, which killed passengers, whereas the possible problems which caused these two crashes have killed quite significant numbers of people. And if we look at new plane types in general, new planes don't tend to crash. So not only to have one, but two crashes of a new airplane um, is rather worrying whether or not uh, both crashes were caused by the same problem.
2: And what is the company Boeing itself saying about this? And what about its own domestic regulators in America?
3: Boeing hasn't said much so far, I mean, in part because it's rather busy trying to scramble to find out what's, what's gone wrong. It says it's providing technical assistance to the Ethiopian authorities. Um, it's promised to launch a new software update by next month, which should ensure that the same problem which occurred on the Lion Air... Crash in Indonesia last year shouldn't reoccur, but other than that, the um, the, the, the PR machine has um, has uh, shut down in that uh, they were going to launch the a new aircraft, a new long haul aircraft called the seven 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 X tomorrow, and that was cancelled because um, they're rather distracted sorting out problems with the seven three seven Max at the moment.
2: But Charles, presumably this is pretty serious for Boeing's business. These are amongst their biggest selling planes, aren't they? And and one of its its biggest single market, China, has grounded them.
3: Well, it's estimated that these planes produce 30 to 35 percent of Boeing's revenues. Um, so on that perspective, it's pretty serious. And the markets are taking it seriously in that the share price of the company has fallen significantly over the past two days. However, some Boeing boosters say that this is an exaggeration of the effect of these problems, and they point to the fact that Airbus's share price has only increased by about 1% over the past day. There's only two major companies which produce airliners, Boeing and Airbus. If Boeing is harmed by this, therefore Airbus must benefit by the same amount. However, I don't think that's entirely the full story going on here, because um, Boeing has 5,000 orders for the 737 MAX 8, but if you're an airline which has ordered this aircraft, you don't have anyone else really to go to to buy them. You could go to Airbus, but Airbus doesn't have any capacity to make any more planes over the next six or seven years. It's having a few production difficulties and delays, which means that it's struggling to produce useful ones they already have on order and so in in theory Boeing's actually in a relatively safe position on that in that um, people can't walk away and try to get the planes from somewhere else but the two aspects where Boeing could be hit hard is firstly if this grounding is prolonged and if this grounding is prolonged it can't deliver the planes it's made to customers and the customers don't pay Boeing the money for the planes Um, And this means that Boeing could have an increasing number of jetliners cluttering up its runways and its taxiways, its production facilities, Um, and this could be a big drop in um, revenue initially. And also in the longer term, you could have a further problem with pricing in that, yes, they can't go to Airbus to buy um, extra planes in the medium term, but they could ask for a discount from Boeing saying, oh, these planes are not particularly safe, there's reputational risk associated with them, and they could ask for a big discount. And this could um, reduce Boeing's revenues considerably compared to Airbus um, in the years to come.
2: From what you're saying, the business worries are not too overwhelming for Boeing at the moment. But in public relations terms, this must be pretty serious, right?
3: Oh yes, this is this is very serious for for them. And I think what highlights the seriousness of this is that people didn't really care what plane they flew on. Um, it would only be the occasional aviation geek who would care whether they were flying on an Airbus or a Boeing. And over the past two days there's been a massive change in public perception about this. People are calling up airlines, people are tweeting airlines. People are talking on blogs and um, internet forums about is is the flight I'm going to go on a Boeing or an Airbus flight. And people are very worried about flying about this plane. And it might well be possible that this plane becomes the first plane where the travelling public do not want to fly on and will pay extra money to avoid. And that's very, very serious for the airline's which have bought this plane, and very serious in that many of these airlines might not want these planes in years to come,
2: Charles, one of our colleagues, Charlotte Howard, the Bureau chief in New York, recently had a terrifying experience aboard another Boeing plane. I think this one was a seven three seven nine hundred not the seven three seven max, but she 's been telling me about it.
1: I was on a plane from Newark Airport to Houston on Sunday night to go to an energy conference, and when we were about forty minutes from Houston. There was a bright flash of light, what looked to me like flames, and a violent shaking of the plane. When we got closer to the ground, as we were on the verge of landing, you know, several hundred feet in the air, not many thousands of feet in the air as we had been before, there were more consistent sparks or more consistent flashes or flames. So after we had landed, the lights went out and the... Crew said, "Evacuate the plane." I was near the rear of the plane, so I went out of, um, went down the inflatable slide in the back, and other passengers exited over the wings of the airplane and through inflatable slides at the front of the aircraft. The next day, the FAA said there was no evidence of fire, but the report did say that the engine failed shortly before landing. No one was hurt, thankfully, and there were just lots of anxious people, understandably in the airport after this had occurred, who seemed to be reluctant to get on an airplane again anytime soon.
2: Charles, how does all that play into Boeing's PR nightmare?
3: Well, that plane uh, was a 737-900, so this is a previous generation of plane, and it sounds like the problems were with more with the engine than the um, plane itself, and the engines are made by different companies to the um, rest of the aircraft. However, um, I don't think the average member of the public would discriminate between um, the two, and it's probably done further damage to Boeing's reputation, whether or not it's the same model of plane. Charles, thank you very much.
2: And you can hear more on this story in The Intelligence, our daily current affairs podcast on Economist Radio.
0: I went to the headquarters of Ctrip. It's a China's biggest online travel agency. It's, it's a very modernistic spaceship-like building designed by Zaha Hadid. Um, huge building with about 10,000 people working in it. Simon Rabinovich is our
2: Asia economics editor based in Shanghai. He's been watching a trend. More Chinese people are going on holiday abroad.
0: I went into the control room, um, what they call the network operations centre, at the heart of the building. Uh, When you walk into the room, you've got uh, bays and bays of people at computers, monitoring basically the back end of the website to make sure that everything is working fine. And then you've got a large screen at the front, where they have a series of different digital global maps that they're scrolling through, showing in real time all the different bookings that are taking place on, on the platforms. So these are the rankings for the top international hotels at the instant. Uh, it's 10:30 in the morning on Monday, March the 11th. Number one is Tokyo. Two Bangkok. Three Seoul. Four Singapore. Five Osaka. Six Phuket. Seven Liverpool. if you look at the first decade of this century, uh, on average every year, uh, there were about 30 million overseas trips made by Chinese citizens. Uh, last year, it was up to 150 million. Uh, and and you know, all basic projections show that that number will will keep on increasing uh, more or less at a double-digit rate for, for the next few years at least.
2: Now, as more Chinese people take their holidays abroad, Simon, I, I suppose in a sense they're becoming part of a huge shift in the global economy, aren't they? Which is what's happening to China's current account surplus.
0: That's right. So, you know, if you go back uh, a decade ago, China had a massive current account surplus. It was about 10% of GDP. Last year, that dwindled to uh, almost nothing, about 0.4% of GDP. And there's a few different reasons for this, but one of the very big ones uh, is the boom in outbound Chinese tourism. Um, China, uh, if you just look at tourism... As a part of the current count, uh, China is running basically a $240 billion tourism deficit, as in China is spending that much more money on outbound tourism than foreign visitors are spending on tourism You know, that's a huge change from uh, just a decade ago. If you go back to 2008, the year that Beijing hosted the Summer Olympics, uh, at that point, China actually had a narrow surplus uh, in terms of tourism. More foreigners were coming to China and spending more money in China uh, than Chinese people were going abroad. So this is uh, a big shift in a remarkably short period of time. So it's, it's something that really does have macroeconomic implications.
2: I suppose uh, from Economics 101, we know that a country's current account, account balance is the gap between its savings and what it invests. So is it that China's saving less, as you're describing, people spending more, or is it investing more, or is it a combination of both?
0: It's actually more on, on the savings side. So the, the investment rate has been you know fairly steady at about forty percent of GDP, which, which is very high by global standards. The savings rate had been exceptionally elevated, about fifty percent of GDP, and that has has come down. That's come down because uh, Chinese people are spending more money, they're consuming more. Um also because of a you know a demographic shift which is which is taking place and is only accelerating, uh the, the aging of the population means that you've got fewer workers supporting more retirees. When this has happened in other countries, that's led to a drawdown of, of the savings rate. And that's something that's that's happening now in China. You know, mechanically when you look at the the um diminishment of the current account surplus the areas in which the money flows are changing, you know, one, the tourism, which I've already discussed. And then two, the other big factor is that China's surplus uh, in the trade of goods uh, has it looks to have peaked. Um, So last year, its surplus was the lowest in uh, half a decade. Uh, China's share of of global exports uh, peaked a few years ago. Um, So although China is still running a big surplus in in, in goods trade, it's not as big as it used to be, which means that when they've got the big deficit on the services side, specifically in terms of outbound tourism, that's what leads the the current account to, uh, to come towards zero.
2: But from what you're saying, it, it looks as if China might have to get used to the idea that it will need to finance a current account deficit. Will that require reforms in its financial system?
0: So I think we have to be careful when we talk about the the, the coming of the current account deficit in China. So it, it's quite clear that the days of these stonking big current account surpluses are gone. Um, But there still are countervailing forces that will prevent the deficit from from getting too big. So China still is a big exporting nation. Uh, It's aware that on the services side, it's been running a big deficit. And so you now see a lot of effort by the government to stop the services deficit from some sort of blowing out of control. Um, So they're investing a lot in their education sector at home. They're trying to um, fix up the tourism sector at home as well to make sure that domestic tourists don't just go abroad, that they stay home and that they attract more foreign tourists as well. So so there's limits to how big the the current account deficit is going to get. But you're absolutely right. I mean, even running a small current account deficit, does put pressure on China to find ways of, of financing it. Uh, and the conventional way to do that is to open up more on the capital account side um, to ensure that foreigners can invest more in, in China's um stock and bond markets as a way of bringing money in they're they're wary about opening up too quickly to foreign capital because that does lead to vulnerabilities. Um, so if you look at the kinds of reforms that they're doing, they're really trying to attract what they deem to be the highest quality foreign capital, which is, um, you know, investment, which is longer term, a little more stable, a little more patient. Um, so they're still going about it very much in their, their sort of controlled gradualist uh, Chinese fashion.
2: I suppose... If you look at the big picture, the removal of that huge 10% surplus of a decade ago, which was blamed by a lot of people, or one of the factors blamed for the global financial crisis, the global imbalance, th- that has gone is something the world ought to be cheering.
0: I think that's right. And I, I think that the idea that the, the surplus in the first place caused the global financial crisis was overdone. Yeah, in the sense that the the original argument was that there is this great savings glut. China was one of the big causes of it. This is something that depressed interest rates and bond yields in America, which then led to speculation, which led to the financial crisis. But as we've seen, with China's current account surplus coming down, the global savings glut has been partially addressed. And yet interest rates in America have remained very low. So China was a contributing factor but but certainly not the the driving cause of all that uh, but I think the bigger the bigger picture is that the you know the the end of the current account surplus means that China has become uh, an important source of demand globally, um, whether it 's Chinese tourists who are going abroad or Chinese consumers who are staying at, at home and buying wine and clothes and luxury cars from around the world. The, the rise of the Chinese consumer is something that I think we're all quite well aware of uh, at this point uh, and the fact that the current account surplus is gone is just one more uh, indication of, of what a big shift has taken place.
2: Simon, thank you very much.
0: Thank you Simon
3: As we are basically through the core program, And finally so we have an electric hatch size of a golf uh, uh,
2: last week at the Geneva Motor Show. Volkswagen's chief executive, Herbert Diess, stood in front of a virtual sand dune in Desert Mountain and unveiled a bright lime-green electric dune buggy. Uh,
3: it's, a, it's a niche car, but uh, uh, if we find a way to produce it efficiently, uh, it, it might come to market. Okay.
1: Efficiency, Today, he
2: confirmed that the carmaker will have to cut jobs as it launches almost 70 new electric models by 2028. And the firm has just published its latest annual results. Vendeline From Bredow is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent based in Berlin. Hello, Vendeline. Hi, Simon. To come back to that opening uh, sound we heard of uh, Mr. Deese in front of a, an electric dune buggy, this doesn't sound like the kind of green enterprise that one associates with Volkswagen.
4: No, absolutely not. Volkswagen is still tainted by the diesel scandal. And I think one of the reasons, or maybe the main reason for their big push into electric cars now is that they want to become a green role model. And maybe that's why they picked the colour green for the buggy. They are going into electrification at a faster pace than than generally expected. And I think within the next 10 years, something like 40% of their lineup is supposed to be electric cars. So that's a huge change for a big traditional car maker.
2: 70 new electric models in the, in the next decade sounds an enormous number. They're, they're going to be introducing them at a rate of about seven a year?
4: Something like that. It is, as I said, unexpectedly high, but they had some encouraging signs from customers in the sense that, for instance, their Porsche model, their Porsche electric vehicle, has already taken pre-orders of more than 20,000 cars. And so they are now thinking to expand the production of I think it's called the Taycan, the, that that new Porsche. So they think that it, you know that, that there is a lot of demand from customer, which is something other other companies are skeptical about. But but Volkswagen is going all in. And
2: how is the firm doing? What what do its annual results show?
4: Well, they are not bad, considering that Volkswagen had so many problems over the last years. You know, the biggest and the most costly one, obviously, was the diesel scandal, which has so far cost them something like 29 billion euros in in fines and, and, and other costs. And also considering that one of their main markets, China, is slowing down. So um, across its brand, Volkswagen sold 10.9 million cars worldwide last year. And they generated 236 billion euros in profit, which is an increase of nearly 3% in annual revenue.
2: And that's after paying all these fines.
4: That's after paying all these fines. So it's, I mean, these with some justifications that we had a decent year and they did, but what analysts say and, and and insiders who I talk to, they say, well, Volkswagen could be doing so much better. They are, the, you know, the biggest private employer in Europe, the biggest European car maker. They have so many different brands. They're investing so much in R and D, and they are really punching below their weight. And it's partly because they keep blocking themselves. They have this archaic corporate governance. And, uh, and their unions or union representatives play an outsized role. And it keeps, you know, wh- whoever tries to reform Volkswagen has to, to, to contend with them. And it's been a big problem and it will be a big problem for Dies, who's only been CEO for about a year.
2: I was going to ask you about him. He, he's relatively new in the job. How is he seen as doing and what are, what are his main tasks? Is it to make Volkswagen green and to sort out its labor relations?
4: Exactly those two things. So he... He came from BMW and then he led VW, Volkswagen, which is, of course, only one of the many brands of the Volkswagen Group. He's an Austrian manager. He's got a very good reputation in the industry. They all say if anyone can reform VW, it's him. But in terms of diplomacy, his most difficult task will be to contend with the very powerful union led by Bern, Mr. Österlo. And the reason they are so powerful is that, first of all, there are union representatives on VW's board, as is the case with many German companies. But also the state of Lower Saxony owns 20% of the company and their representatives on the board tend to follow the lead of unions. So unions are much more powerful. At VW than at other traditional German companies.
2: Wendlin, thanks very much.
4: Pleasure, Simon.
2: And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, why not try a subscription at economist.com/slash radio offer? Twelve issues for £12 or $12. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.
0: only from rustolium